want to begin on a bit of a different note. Um, you're going to probably think I'm crazy um, because I'm going to kind of introduce this particular chapter with the way I think. And it has to do with uh, um, the idea of belief. The second song that we sang, we said, we believe, we believe over and over again. And I think everybody in this room would agree that that word, belief or faith, synonyms are, are, are very, very important um, to the Christian faith. It's all throughout the Bible that we believe that a person is not saved by what they do, but on the basis of what and in whom they believe. That, that means, like, everything's at stake on, on this, this idea of belief. Life, death, forgiveness, judgment, is, it all hinges on this thing we call belief. What we believe and whom we believe in. And that's part of the gospel that I think most everybody in this room, at least, would, would accept. That we are accepted on the basis not of what we do, but on who we believe and what he's done for us. And I think most of us would also agree that that faith is a gift. That we cannot exercise that faith apart from God's help. That is apart from God's grace. Um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. That is salvation and faith. It is a gift. I think most of us would say that that's true. This idea of believing is something that God uh, awakens within us. And, and apart from his grace we cannot do. But you know I, I think about that truth. And, um, and I realize. And this is again kind of how I think. When you look at human experience, and we just look around us, we see people who believe all the time things that are crazy, and they don't need God's grace to believe it, which would lead me to believe in some sense that people are capable of choosing belief of faith without grace. We have people in the Middle East who believe in a God that they cannot see, and I'm not talking about everybody in the Middle East, but some in the Middle East who believe in a God they cannot see and believe to the point of strapping bombs to themselves and killing innocent people that they're doing a service to their God. And that, 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 that supreme sacrifice, at least in their way of thinking, of their own lives earns them what they believe to be a, a one-way ticket to paradise. As they exercise belief, belief to the point that they're willing to do unmentionable things. And we wouldn't, in this room, say that that belief requires God's grace. Certainly not God's grace that's prompting that belief in the Middle East. Uh, I go to the grocery store and I see a line of people. And they're standing in line to buy lottery tickets. With the belief, however bad the odds are, the belief that they might have a chance of striking it rich and winning. Lottery. I think most of us in this room would say that it wasn't God's grace that moved them in belief to buy a lottery ticket. That is to say, we look around, we realize that people choose to believe things all the time that doesn't require God's help or God's grace. So in one sense, is grace required for us to believe when it seems, from all outward appearances, that it's, it's within the realm of human power to choose what we believe doesn't require grace, at least from all outward perspectives. So why? Why, why, does it, why does Christian belief and faith require God's grace to, to believe? Now, the answer to that question, I think, is crucial. On the one hand, we can say, well, the Bible's wrong. We really don't need, or at least Ephesians 2.8 is wrong. We don't require grace to believe. 
It's within the realm of human power to believe, so Ephesians 2.8 is wrong. Or we can recognize that there's different kinds of belief. There is or are categories of defective belief, and then there is true belief and what separates them. And I believe this chapter, chapter 6 of John, brings out this defective kind of belief, which in many respects, in every respect, it is within the power of the human will to choose these defective forms of belief, but this form of true belief requires grace. And I want to show why. Now this chapter, chapter 6 of John, opens with a, with a powerful miracle. Um, that is, uh, Jesus is out probably on the eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee, which is an arid place. It's the Golan Heights, if you go there today. Um, no water or springs there. And so he's, he's there with his disciples, and thousands of people descend upon him there. Um, from the details of the text, it would seem that upwards in the neighborhood of 20,000 people come to him. Um, it says 5,000 men, but then you add to that men or women and children, you realize probably around 20,000 people descend on Jesus in this arid place. And the people are hungry. And so Jesus does a miracle. There's two fish and five loaves, and all of you have heard of the story. He gives thanks to the Lord, and in that place, he does an astonishing miracle of multiplication. He takes those two fish and five loaves, and he multiplies it to the point that when it's distributed, everybody is fed, and not just like communion with a crumb. It's, they are fed to the point that they are filled. And after they gather up all the remnants so as not to waste any, there's 12 basketfuls. 20,000 people have been fed out in the desert. Now, to us in the 21st century, who don't always connect dots, we would think, wow, that's a pretty amazing picnic that Jesus put on. That's 20,000 people he fed. That's great. Like, awesome. But to the Jewish person who was there at the time, they would have connected dots because in their ancestral history, this had happened before. They would have remembered that 1,500 years before this moment when Jesus had just multiplied all this bread, they would have remembered that there was another time under the leadership of Moses, when they were walking through an arid place for 40 years, and they had nothing to eat. And God, in an act of grace and loving kindness and faithfulness, provided them manna or bread. Every day they were in the desert. So they would have been thinking, Moses? Jesus. It happened before when God's presence came through a man, and, and it's happening again. And so they concluded in that moment, rightly so, that they must be standing in the presence of a prophet. And sure enough, I'm not going to read the text other than verse 14. This is their conclusion. They're connecting dots. Past history, Moses, and today, Jesus. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, they're connecting dots, this is indeed the prophet, the one that Moses said would come into the world. So they conclude at this moment that he is a prophet. Now, what I failed to mention was that they actually, they were clamoring to him because they knew that he had the power of healing. Um, he healed the sick, and as a result of that, they were coming in by the droves. Uh, can you imagine a person who could actually heal every form of disease completely? Um, if that person was to arrive in Fairfield, people would be flying in from South America, from the East Coast, everywhere. Someone who could cure every form of cancer, every form of dementia or 
any kind of uh, debilitation. I just, it would be utterly amazing. And that's what's happening. 20,000 people, Jesus feeds them. They conclude he's a prophet and they know that he's done a miracle. So at this level, there, there is a, there's, a, there's a form of belief. They're following after him. At very least, they believe him to be a prophet and, um, and someone who has the power of healing. But Jesus is going to go on to uncover the defectiveness of their belief, the defectiveness of the reasons by which they are coming to him, for which they are coming to him. And I want to just kind of draw out those defective forms of belief in hopes that perhaps if some here are operating with defective belief, you'll recognize it. And then on the positive side, what are the, what are the true realizations of real faith? Because they come out in this chapter. After Jesus does this miracle, he does this walk on the water thing and gets him back to the west, northwest side of Galilee or to the place of Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. And there the people gather to him again, same people. They've walked all the way around the lake. They want him that badly. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Now he's looking right through their hearts and sees the defectiveness of their faith. I say to you, you are seeking me, or you were, uh, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, and as the signs were to lead to a deeper level of who Jesus really was. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And Jesus recognizes that they are following him and approaching him to the point that he provides for their physical or materialistic needs. And that is a defective form of faith or a defective approach to Jesus. As Jesus is a means to materialistic advantage. He calls him out. Now, is there anywhere that you can think of where people come to or trust in Jesus as a means of materialistic prosperity? I'll tell you what, next Sunday, don't come to church and watch TV at home. And you'll see some of it. The belief that if I come to Jesus, he will provide for me in this life and offer me my best life now. That's defect number one. Defect number two. And actually, verse 27, Jesus kind of rebukes them and says, listen, don't work for the food that perishes. What does it last? Three, four hours, and then you got to eat again? But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. It's like, notice he says work. Work for the food. Do something. Pursue a different kind of food. And that leads them to defect number two. Defect number two has to do with working. So they say to him, what must we do? What actions must we take? The works um, to be doing the works of God. At this point, they're perhaps thinking of Jesus as, a, as another kind of Moses that's going to provide some new instructions by which to either gain God's favor or to be in good relationship. That is looking at Jesus as a purveyor of religious duty. That's the work that they're assuming he's talking about. We need to do some things. And that, too, is a defective form of faith, a defective approach to Jesus, to think that Jesus is simply or no more than 
someone who offers to us a superior, enlightened form of morality. And I've met people in my life who go to church because they believe Jesus teaches principles by which they live, and if they live out those principles, they'll live a good life. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus teaches a sense of morality, but that morality is always centered in the cross and who God is. Not morality detached from faith or detached from who God is or what God has done. Thomas Jefferson wrote an entire book about Jesus as an enlightened moral teacher devoid of anything supernatural because he believed him to be an enlightened moral teacher. And there are those who, who come to Jesus as that. And to come to Jesus as that is someone who's going who's gonna to show you the blueprint of life, and if you live that blueprint, then you're going to be good, is a defective approach to who Jesus is. So Jesus responds and answers their misunderstanding. He says, this is the work of God. I'm, I'm not talking about a whole list of things you're going to do here. And in this sense, Jesus and Paul are exactly on the same page. Of course, they would never not be on the same page. But he says, the works, the, uh, the, the works that I'm calling you to is this, that you believe in him whom he, God, has sent. Your work is to believe. There's that word again. Believe. To trust. That leads to the fact number three. At some level, like I told you, they believe. They believe he's a prophet. They believe he can multiply bread. They believe he can heal. But that's not enough. And so they ask for more signs. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's like, seriously? Did they, did they have a massive form of amnesia here? He just fed 20,000 people in the desert. And they're saying, what kind of sign do you show us? You've already seen the sign. You didn't believe the sign. And now you're asking for more signs. And it just shows us once again, and I know we like to think otherwise, that if I, if I have enough evidence and if Jesus does parlor tricks for me, I'm going to believe in him. But that's not the case. It wasn't the case in Moses' day, and it wasn't the case in Jesus' day. They saw the ten plagues in Moses' day. They saw the waters part in the Red Sea. They had manna to eat, and they had, they, they had meat to eat. And day by day by day, but they still didn't believe, no matter what they saw. Same in Jesus' day. He feeds 20,000 people, and they still don't believe. It just goes to show us that believing, and this is the defect, believing is not caused by either evidence or miracle. Evidence and miracle can affirm one's faith, but it does not cause one's faith. And the defect is believing that if I have enough evidence and if I see enough signs, that it will produce faith in me. So you want me to believe, you want me to do the work of belief, we'll do something and I'll believe you. Defect. The whole Bible is full of that defect. The world full of that defect. And then defect number four. Defective approach. Jesus is the dispenser of spiritual goods. Jesus says in verse 32, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That is, the idea is Moses wasn't the origin of that. 
it was God's goodness and God's love. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now he switches into the present tense, gives you. Now he's drawing attention not to the past but to the present. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, and here's the response again, they still don't get the picture. Sir, give us this bread always. That this, whatever bread you're talking about that comes down from heaven, give it to us always. Perhaps they thought of it as, 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 a, as, a, as a, uh, some kind of spirituality, some spiritual lesson, some spiritual benefit. Don't know. What they're asking here for is obviously at this point not physical bread. Jesus is the dispenser of spiritual goods, spiritual lessons, or some kind of a, an, a heightened spiritual experience. Like Jesus is a dispenser that you stick the quarter in, out pops something. Now let's, let's just pause here for a moment. And recognize that all of these ways of approaching Jesus, all of these defective forms of belief come to Jesus as a means to another end. And that other end reinforces a self-centered life. It puts us at the center of our own world. Give me bread so that I can eat. Give me spiritual goods so that I can be spiritual. Do politics so that I can believe. And all of these ways of coming to Jesus exist. And every one of them is defective. Every one of them allows our human pride, self-centeredness, and our need to contribute intact. All defective. I, I don't know if there's anybody here to say, yeah, that's why I come. I believe it somehow makes me a better person, the spiritual goods part. Jesus is going to turn the tables at this point in a way that is going to utterly devastate human pride. First of all, he's going he's to just be explicit. Listen, you've missed it up to this point. The whole reason I made all of that bread appear is to point to the deeper sign that the bread has come. And it's not in the it's not in barley or wheat. It's in the person of me. And that is the first truth of real faith. He says, I am the bread of life. It's not just that I dispense bread. I am bread. I am that which gives life. I am that which sustains life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes, and the issue is belief again. Belief that Jesus is the bread that gives us life. Himself, not just the dispenser of bread. He is bread. And so we are too, the idea is to feed upon who he is by faith. And as we do, we live. He is life. He is the very essence of, 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 of life. Not just the one who hands it out. But want someone who, to know him and to experience him and to believe in him is itself life. That's truth number one of a real faith. Is you, you come to Jesus for Jesus' sake, because you want him, you hunger for him. You find in him the unsearchable riches of God's grace and love. Not as a means to an end, but an end in and of itself. Truth number two, and this is utterly devastating to his listeners and to the 21st century arrogant mind. That belief is generated by grace. 
not miracle slash evidence. They said, do signs and we'll believe you. And Jesus is like, no, you can't believe me unless God does something first. So when he says here in verse 36, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. You've seen, but you don't believe. Evidence is not enough. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It doesn't say they may. They will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, only the, the, those that the Father has given will actually come and feast upon the bread, and that doesn't include everybody. God must draw. God must bring people to Christ. Now, in saying that, Jesus is not minimizing personal responsibility. Right after that, he says, whoever comes, there is kind of an open invitation. Not minimizing personal responsibility, nor is he attempting to exclude people. He's attempting to humble, utterly, human arrogance. You think you have within you the capacity to choose me. And here he basically says, that is not true. You know how utterly devastating that is to, to, to 21st century listeners like, like us who would like to think, well, oh, of course I can choose. I live in a world where I make choices. Well, not when it comes to who Jesus is. That requires God to do a work. That requires him to graciously draw you to him. So that when you actually come to Jesus, you can't say, well, I was more enlightened than the next guy. Or I was a bit brighter than the next guy. Or I was more spiritually in tune to the cosmic forces than the next guy. No, I was drawn by the sheer grace of God. Nothing more humbling than to recognize you came to faith by grace. That's the, one of the truths to recognizing, wow, God, you really have brought me to yourself. Now, after God opens the eyes, do we then have the choice to believe? Yes, I believe we do. Every day we have to choose to believe. But it was brought to life and continued to be sustained by the grace of God. Truth number three. Jesus brings out that he is both the preserver and the finisher of eternal life. Right after the portion I just read, it says, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is the Father's will for me, the Son, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. You know the ones that, that the, God, the God the Father has given and then come to him? He's not going to lose a single one, but raise it up on the last day. That means Jesus is charged with sustaining that eternal life that he gives us. And completing it. Preserving and completing. That, 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 that's food for real faith to know each day I live because Jesus is faithful to sustain my faith and my life. And Jesus has promised that when he started, he will continue and he will complete. That's all his work. The bread of life that continues to preserve and complete. These are, these are truths of real faith. But then he drives it even deeper. And this fourth truth actually sends the vast majority of this vast crowd running in disgust. You get, get the sense that Jesus is not interested in massive crowds. He's interested... In saving his people. So verse 23, he gets more graphic. I'm sorry, 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice that last phrase we just we saw in the, the former one, raise it on the last day. He's transitioned from bread to flesh and blood, which is grotesque. Obviously, he is, he is transitioning to his death. He's not talking about literal cannibalism. I think all, everybody here know that. And just, the whole idea of eating is the idea of believing and relying upon the work of Jesus in the same way that we rely upon having Cheerios in the morning and scrambled eggs and, and chicken at night. Whatever it is you have, like daily you rely upon bread to keep you alive. He's saying, listen, you have to rely upon the fact that I did what none of you could do. I laid down my life and I paid for it all. I have removed from you as far as the east is from the west your sins and transgressions. And I have, by way of my resurrection, given you life. And that only could I do. And unless you, unless you take that in by faith, unless it becomes a part of who you are. That's what bread does. You know, take it in and it becomes part of who we are. Taking the flesh and blood, his death becomes part of who we are. The old man died and the new man is given new life. And notice how exclusive it is. His, it's, it's the exclusive means to life. That, too, is just as controversial, if not more, in the 21st century than it was in the first century. Jesus is saying, there is no other way apart from my death. Look at the yellow words again. Unless, unless you eat the flesh. In other words, unless you rely upon what I have done on your behalf to free you and forgive you, you have no life in you. Exclusive. That too, the belief of faith in Christ is by reason of his, his death, but also his own words. He's the exclusive means to life. His death is the exclusive means to life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Everybody in this room, true faith. True faith comes to Jesus not as a means to another end, but as an end in and of itself. In him we find life. And, 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 and in him we, we continue to feed and, 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 and that life is sustained. And we believe because he is faithful that he, he will complete that life. And that his death has made that all possible. That is, you put all these together and you realize that salvation in its entirety is in the hands of Christ. We cannot control it, we cannot manage it, and we cannot contribute to it. Other than simply this thing we call faith. But even that, as we've seen, is a gift of grace. That's, so why? Back to the first question. This is, this is who Jesus is. That salvation, our life, our future, everything is all found in his hands. In what he's done and who he is. That's, that is the substance of real faith. And if this isn't part of your life, this, this, the, these four things... You've got to stop and wait, just do what they should have done in that time. Do we really believe with a real faith? So back to the question, why is it that people can exercise faith in so many other things without grace, but this particular truth requires grace? And I, I, I believe the answer is the self-centered, egotistical, proud, person 
that lives in its fallen nature is utterly repulsed by someone who says you cannot control, you cannot contribute, you cannot manage, you cannot even believe to save your own soul. The fallen person cannot, will not, and is in fact repulsed by the idea that salvation is wholly and completely of God and of grace, and you have no peace in it. It's offensive to fallen man, and only by God bringing to, uh, uh, but when a person comes to the realization, you hear the good news of what God himself has done, and that salvation is entirely a work of his grace, and you're brought to that place of utter humility where you realize, I can't do anything. That is the moment that you begin to believe, and that is the moment you begin to live. Is coming to that realization, I contributed nothing. And Christ contributed everything. That is a moment of absolute humility and the beginning of faith and the beginning of life. That's why we need grace to believe it, because our old self is repulsed by that truth. Our pride is seriously um, recoils from that truth. But that is, at the same time, such a wonderful truth. Man, we sit in this room this morning because Christ has offered it all. We sit in this room this morning um, because he has offered us the true bread of life. And he has told us you cannot contribute to it. All you can do is believe in that belief. Life comes. I pray that oh, just this morning as we, we hold these elements in our hand, because if you haven't noticed this communion this morning, just remember, you know, he really did pay it all. And the, the kind of the hunger of, of true faith, you know, is, is the song that we sang right before the message. You can't tell me that that song, Give Me Jesus, which was written by a slave, a slave who had nothing, didn't have real faith because the song's not about coming to Jesus for material prosperity or coming to Jesus as a, a means to another end. It's like, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, just give me once, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, Jesus, you can have all this world. Give me once, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. We need to take the bread this morning, bless his blood. Is, is he enough? Is the one thing your soul craves and longs for more than anything else? Jesus. This is his death. This is where he paid it all. I'm going to pray. And after I do, actually, as I do, if I could have those who are going to serve you, communion, um, take your place. We don't have gluten bread this morning. So apologize for that. Um, but then after I pray, invite you to come up. There's going to be a song that's sung that's meant to be listened to. So look at the words, listen to the song. And as you come forward, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to this table. Um, commune with the bread of life this morning.
when you're ready. Father, we thank you for the reminder from your word that Jesus is better than life, and we are thankful that you have truly done it all. While that's offensive to our, fi- uh, our pride, it's deeply, deeply edifying to our faith to know that you are the author and sustainer and finisher of our salvation. We come to you, Jesus, this morning in a spirit of worship. We just come with a spirit of gratitude. We come with a spirit of conviction saying, Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times that we have wanted other things more than you. But in this moment, Jesus, we pray by your spirit, you would remind us why you're better than life. So Lord, minister to us through the bread that symbolizes his body and his, this cup which symbolizes his blood that was poured out for us. And as we eat the blood and drink, eat the, eat, the, eat the bread and drink the cup, I pray that we would be mindful that from this and this alone we find life. We pray this in his name.